Hello, and welcome to IRI Growth Insights, featuring IRI thought leaders, industry partners, and guests. For more than 40 years, IRI has been known for its invaluable data, but these podcasts explore insights that the data reveal to fuel disruption and market growth for CPG, retail, healthcare, and media industries. I'm your host, Tanya Shakart, coming to you from my home office in Southern California. So I'd like to welcome Sam Gagliardi, Executive Vice President, e-commerce for IRI, and Sucharita Kodali, Vice President and Principal Analyst of Forrester Research. It is always a pleasure to have you two pros together. Welcome. Thanks, Tanya. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. Yeah. So um, so you two are just coming off a webinar together um, last week. So I thought maybe we could build from that Retail This Week series, uh, Sucharita, that you and your colleagues at Forrester are doing at a pretty regular cadence, I think. Um, And I know Sam joined you to discuss insights around how COVID-19 is impacting the grocery industry and e-commerce and specifically a shift from e-commerce being primarily about convenience pre-COVID to being about health and safety during COVID. But before we get into that, which is kind of the meat of our conversation today, um, we do try to keep the content as current as possible on growth insights. And so I thought maybe we'd start with all the questions we're hearing about um, what happens now, if anything, that there have been changes to the unemployment benefits um, stemming from the executive order to extend them, but at a reduced amount. And I know that IRI released some thought leadership uh, on this topic just a few days ago, and, and we'll put a link to that research in the show notes section when the podcast publishes, but just a high level, the data indicated growth for at-home edible spending has slowed since late July um, in grocery and multi-outlet. I'm just wondering if, you know, the slowing changes suggest this emerging uh, correlation with unemployment. I know maybe it could in some states, but, um, you know, Sujarita, I thought maybe this would be a good opportunity to hear from you about what you and Forrester are expecting to see. Yeah, Tanya. I mean, I I think that the IRI data, which is excellent and everybody should take a look at, um, it suggests basically that um, it's still a little too early to to tell. Um, You're absolutely right. The edible spend is down a little bit, but from a state-by-state correlation standpoint, it's kind of all over the place. And what we think is going to happen, because um, who knows how long these benefits are going to last and whether they're actually distributed everywhere they actually need to go. The challenge is that um, consumers are just going to have less money in their pockets. And every sector of the economy, including essentials, is likely going to face some kind of a challenge as a result. So that could mean everything from trading down to, um, you know, kind of more consumption of the uh, opening price point private label goods to, um, you know, just choosing um, to purchase, you know, kind of less expensive items. It could be packaged goods versus fresh and perishable items, which tend to be more expensive. So there are, are all these challenges. It also begs a question about what happens with um, with delivery, because often delivery is more correlated to, um, you know, kind of some premium pricing. Um, there are often fees associated with things like delivery. So does that drive some of those consumers more back to physical stores. I mean, what's interesting is that 
we've discovered through the course of the pandemic that, um, you, you know, kind of delivery is popular with every income demographic for different reasons. Um, and, you know, and, and to the degree that delivery is offered, um, people are, are had been embracing it. But now, if they're incomes are even lower and they don't have any government support, um, less of that is going to, you know, flow to to essential retailers, grocers, mass merchants, et cetera. Now, all that said, food is, of course, going to be the last thing that people cut out. And, you know, where I expect to see more of the stimulus or the now the elimination impact, it's likely going to be in number of those discretionary categories that we had already been seeing really, really suffering, like the department stores, the clothing and apparel stores, the restaurants, um, you know, kind of what one of the pleasant surprises of the last few months is that what we thought was going to be 50% declines in some apparel stores was only like a 25% decline. Um, and I think that what we will see is we'll actually see that 50% decline in some of those categories moving forward. Mm-hmm. Sam? Yeah, I mean, I think Sotrita, you know, uh, really outlined a lot. I guess my, my two cents that I would add here um, is this. Un- un- unfortunately, for, for many of the households in the United States, um, we've seen this movie before. We, we saw this movie in 2008. And, and, and Sotrita is absolutely right. You know, families will continue to need to feed themselves. Um, but what we've what we learned from 2008 was that also, you know, while budgets are, are fixed, and if budgets become constrained and, and begin to shrink, what you'll see, and, and this is where I think e-commerce plays an incredibly important role, what we saw in 08 was that, was that shoppers spent more time researching what they're going to buy, where they're going to buy it, to get the biggest bang for the buck. Again, budgets are finite, you know, they're fixed, um, and if they begin to shrink, I think you'll see that happening more. Now, e-commerce is, is actually the absolute best place for those consumers, for those shoppers, to, to really find the best, the best offering that's out there, to really be able to cherry pick, you know, where they buy, what they buy, and how they buy going forward. Um, and and Sutri is absolutely right, you know, you know if, if delivery continues to be more expensive, this is where folks will opt out for more of a pickup type model, so forth and so on. But again, you know, we've, we've progressed from the, from the e-commerce in the pre-COVID phase being mm-hmm. all about convenience mm-hmm. to, to, you know, e-commerce during the height of COVID being about health and safety mm-hmm. to now e-commerce being a way to make sure that you're able to provide for your family going forward. So the digital interface, the digital means, um, I think just becomes even more sticky going forward, um, becomes, it, be, it continues to, to really stand out and, 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 and shows consumers that the old habits of going to store are probably not the best way for you to fulfill the needs and wants of your family going forward. So, so I, I see e-commerce continue to be um, that much more important. In fact, I think we just did research the other day as well. Um, you know, we're, we're experiencing right now plus um, 82% of shopping experiences are now, all of them are beginning online. Mm-hmm. Meaning even before you go in store, you're looking at circulars, you're looking at ads, you're being, you're being, um, you're searching where to find what, um, you're seeing who's in stock where. And, and because that shopping trip is beginning online, um, I think you're going to start seeing, you know, fewer and fewer foot traffic going in store. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, this was sort of the, in that sense, right? The catalyst that everyone was waiting for to fill baskets. So, um, you know, what, I know that you guys talked about this a little bit on the webinar. It was interesting. What kinds of myths are out there about e-com penetration? 
Well, um, there, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that there are some myths around which merchants um, consumers may or may not be purchasing. I think in grocery, um, there is not a clear understanding of who's buying what where. And what um, I know, you know, I've worked with IRI for, for a number of months now on and really digging into the grocery data. And there are clear distinctions between who and what, you know, where people are purchasing perishables versus non-perishables, um, food versus non-food. And that, um, and that's, that I think, you, you know, kind of is, is also, um, really, really important to, to understand. And there are also big differences between delivery versus shipment versus, um, in-store pickup. And they all have different nuances. Like, Walmart is really, really strong with perishables in grocery, and it's really strong with the in-store pickup piece. But we also know that Amazon is one of the most dominant players in e-commerce globally, um, but they have been dominating for a number of years in the non-perishable space from a, you know, kind of a home delivery and not, not, not a, you know, kind of a short haul home delivery, but like a mail order home delivery standpoint. And, um, that has implications for which brands partner with which retailer, um, and it it has you know, you know significant implications for things like you know recommendation engines and um, you, you know kind of where where consumers are even going to choose to purchase. Yeah, and and, and my, my my two cents on this is um, you know Sutrita you know um, is absolutely right, but also during the COVID crisis, um, the height of it at least or at least you know phase one here, um, what we also saw was um, a little bit more leveling of the playing field, and and I point to Instacart's um, incredible performance during that that time. Now, you know their their performance basically allowed many other retailers to participate in fulfilling the needs and wants of consumers via digital means. So, so I think it, we're, we're starting to see a more, um, you know, more disbursement of, of uh, a penetration across different retailers. You know, mm-hmm. so is right previously, it was really an Amazon and a Walmart type type story. Now Instacart's coming in and Instacart success leads to success across other different retailers. But my, but this is a point I think that, that, that brands need to, to, to realize and also retailers at the same time. Unlike in the in-store environment where um, a large percentage of, of purchases are impulsive, um, when you come online, because of you know what I call, in essence, the trifecta that basically eliminates shopping, what I mean by that is that what we're, what we're noticing right now is that, is that um, uh, shoppers don't reshop, they rebuy. Okay, so because of because of you know, auto auto fulfillment, because of you know voice reordering or voice ordering, and because of purchasing off of what you previously purchased, the opportunity for brands to introduce themselves to consumers is dwindling, mm-hmm. and and because this industry is very used to being able to gain incremental volume by shipping in a lot of volume into a retailer and working with that retailer to set up displays, what what the, the branded manufacturing community needs to understand is, is, is that, no, you can't do that any longer. You actually need to work harder. You need to work harder and you need to work smarter by identifying which shoppers will be open to buying which items um, at what type of an offering at which retailers. 
And if you target those, those consumers and you do that via lookalike targeting in essence in marketplaces, then you'll be able to match up a potential purchaser via qualified lead to your item. And then that's, that's the new world that's, need, that's going to need to happen again here too. Again, going back to the point that we made first, right? Um, it's a false expectation that, that budgets when it comes to consumer packaged goods will increase. Um, there's nothing that any of us are seeing that we're out of this COVID crisis. There's nothing that any of us seeing that money is actually flowing from the federal government to households, right? And in that context, I think we should all expect contraction. Mm-hmm. However, for the brands who proactively seek out the right shoppers and speak to those shoppers, they'll f- have an opportunity to really uh, build a substantial lead online in the coming months. Sam raises um, some really, really important points. And I think um, the overarching theme is that for some brands, loyalty is, um, you know, kind of loyalty is paramount and it's hard to get that, that, you know, kind of switching component. Mm -hmm. However, what's really also interesting is that what we learned in the earlier part of the pandemic is that, you know, because inventory was so unpredictable and demand was so unpredictable, you had a lot of out of stocks, right? So the out of stock is what actually enabled some brand switching. And um, and we've seen that over the years, right? Like in, in any kind of natural disaster, you know, when items are sold out, that is an opportunity for, for challenger brands to actually um, gain share. And, and that's something that as a brand, I would look very closely to is, you know, is anybody in your competitive set um, being challenged from a supply chain standpoint? Is there, there an opportunity there? The other opportunity that I think is inherent and so important in what Sam just said is the new imperative to look at things like retailer media networks and to look at other digital um, touch points that could influence consumers. There's like, there are apps out there. There, There's a company called Fetch Rewards, for instance, that, um, you know, that works with CPGs and you know, kind of has consumers doing things like scanning in their receipts. And and the whole idea is to help brands prospect new customers digitally. So um, it is a different world and people are, you know, not going to be, you know, they're not going to the stores as much. And, you know, when they go, you know, they're trying to get in and out and just find what they, um, you know, are, are loyal to already. Um, but that's where you have to be so much more creative as a brand mm-hmm. to try to, you know, kind of expose your customer, um, you know, to these, to these new shoppers in this, in this digital environment. And so, Trita, just to, just to tie on this too, and, and, and just a couple of things that we're seeing in the marketplace right now where, where, where brands are, are, are sort of missing on this opportunity. The, the, the first thing, and I spoke about this already, but let's let's bring it up again. The the instance the instance of of consumers reshopping is dwindling, mm-hmm. meaning that you know if you're not being purchased and you're starting to develop a share gap of what your share is in store versus share online, right? It's going to be that much more challenging for you to be able to regain that that gap. Meaning, right? If your share, let's make this up. If your share is a twenty in store and all of a sudden online is a fifteen. Well, eventually, as more and more shoppers come online, for all the reasons that we talked about before, first it was convenience, then it was health and safety. Now it's about being able to better manage your your budget, right? So that's all going in the same direction. So 
you know, as 20, as 30, as 40, you know, up, up, you know, up to scale in terms of more and more those shoppers come online, your brand will get that much smaller because your, your share is not only a, an indication of what happened in the past, but also it predicts what's going to happen in the future because you're not on the list. You're not being purchased. You're not being considered even at that point. And to help brands to, to grasp that, we've been talking in the marketplace for several years, a strategy that we, we call a plus two. And that, and that strategy is one where, where we truly believe that in the, in the context of brands need to work, need to work harder to, to, to connect with the rights consumer, to be a consideration for that consumer, to build loyalty for that consumer, that in the way that you do that is that you need to invest at what you believe your business will be two years from now. Invest at that level today. Because if you wait for two years for your business to be that size, it will not be that size. And if you want it to be that size, your investment will be that much greater. And then your return on investment at that time will be that much less. So invest early, you know, create an always on campaign. And also, this is really important. Understand now with, with digital platforms, even if it's a retailer run digital platform, that that investment should be a consideration of a national investment program. Don't, don't get hung up that because it has the name Amazon on it or Walmart on it or Instacart on it, that it's a shopper marketing retailer program. You're talking to, to shoppers outside of that traditional retailer, and you should really allocate national dollars and look at it in terms of national performance, in terms of, again, how you're capturing those consumers, making them aware of your product, meeting their needs, and then most importantly, being on their list so they can not only buy you once, but that they can have that loyalty to buy you on and on and on from going forward. The, the information that you guys are <laughs> bantering back and forth with is so rich, um, but it, it brings up a couple of things. So can you talk a little bit more about Instacart's hold on online grocery delivery and even going back to the retailers, which ones are gaining share? And I know you've talked about this before, Sam, which ones are gaining share and at whose expense? Yeah. So, I mean, Amazon is losing share. Let's start there. Amazon's, you know, um, powerhouse is is uh, is non-edible consumable brands, right? But as more and more edibles are coming online, the edible side of the business is actually growing faster, and it becomes straight math. When the edible side of the business is growing faster, the overall size of the industry is getting larger. But the consumables that that means that their share is getting smaller. Then, right? So in that context, Amazon is is growing is growing. Is, is losing share and growing slower than what we're seeing right now, which is being driven by Instacart and by Walmart and by Kroger, so forth and so on. You know, I, I've, I spoke about this before. Um, the, the fact that we are where we are in terms of e-commerce and penetration and, and retailer share right now has everything to do with, with which retailers invested in building out the infrastructure. The, the pent-up demand was always there being able to fulfill your needs and wants through the infrastructure of a retailer is what has caught up to us finally and needs to continue to be developed. Um, so to answer your question, you know, we, we're seeing Amazon continue to lose share in the marketplace because of the edibles. Um, because of edibles, we're, we're seeing that, that Walmart and Instacart and all the other click and collect big retailers like Kroger and so forth are, are continuing to grow share as well too as more and more shoppers, especially with COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone was, was very fine with buying Lysol wipes or, or buying other consumables online. And there might have been a little bit of a slow walk in getting to fresh or, or, or edible type categories. But, but once COVID hit, all of a sudden, you know, like, you know, having to wear gloves, having to bring sanitizer, having to wear masks, 
potentially wearing shields when you went grocery shopping, that became an, 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 a new barrier for people to go in store and became that much easier for them to, to, to transfer all those edible purchases online. So what, I mean, I know we've talked a little bit about data. What, um, in this rapid rise of e-commerce, what is the data telling us? Like, are you, are you still seeing any, um, you know, pandemic specific stocking up? Um, you know, what are you seeing? When it comes to online, the, uh, the, the peak was in April and May. And since the peak, the, uh, the peak has come down. Um, but the peak is still more than twice what it was going into the, the pandemic. So to answer your, your question, during the peak, it was higher. But right now, the business is still two, two plus what it was going in. So it's almost like a step. We were, we were coming in here and now we're, we're, we're twice that going out. Um, I, I think with, you know, what we need to consider here is that, is that towards the back half of the year, I think more and more purchases will continue to go online. Um, more and more regular purchases will go online. We've talked about this already. You know, um, you know e-commerce has, has already been proven to be an effective way to be able to manage your budget by, by being able to purchase what you need, where you need to buy, be able to buy it. Um, Amazon, to be very clear, Amazon, um, you know, is almost like Walmart on steroids in the context of always having the lowest price. Um, so much so, you know, having been in the industry, knowing that their price is sometimes below what the cost of the product is, um, you know, that's just going to continue to accentuate um, uh, the competitive space in the online, online marketplace. Traditional retailers like Walmart and Kroger are not going to stand for that. So they're going to, in essence, follow Walmart's lead in terms of offering great pricing. And again, the benefit, the, the consumer will get the biggest benefit of it going forward. But no, to answer your question, you know, business is, is more than twice what it was before the, the, the before COVID. And it's, it is slightly down from the peak of COVID, but we, we do expect it to continue to grow at a, at a considerable rate going forward. So Sharita, what, what are your, your thoughts on this? Yeah, we are um, expecting that um, as long as we are in a pandemic, which seems like it is going to be at least um, another several quarters, definitely through 2020 and through uh, much of 2021 as well, that we will see this continued shift to e-commerce. And I think that there's been a lot of debate as to how much of online retail sticks. And I think that there are a couple of schools of thought. Um, when you looked at what happened, for instance, in China, um, they got through their cycle pretty quickly. I mean, they, you know, they had issues and lockdowns in Q4, and but they were they were pretty much through the worst of it um, by the time it it came to Western markets. Um, so the amount of time that it affected them. Um, was less than what we are seeing. So what happened was that they only leapfrogged maybe a year. And I think that in the United States, like early in the pandemic, the thinking was, oh, we'll get past it by the summer and we'll likely see a similar um, rate of adoption, we'll leapfrog a year. But as this pandemic continues, um, I think that what you end up with is, you know, just longer for that behavior to change and shift. And what we know is that about 30% of people think that they're going to get COVID by walking into a store. Mm -hmm. And an even greater percent 
or just avoiding going to stores altogether. And if that's the case, you have a third of people who permanently, especially if this is going to go on until this time next year, who are either just doing curbside or they're doing some kind of delivery. And, you know, kind of it's once it, once you're doing that like 30 times, it's or once you've done that 30 times, you know, it's less likely that you're going to go back to the old way. I mean, if if we had gotten past the pandemic by now, I think that, you know, we could have safely said, oh, it's only going to be like a year or so that we'll leapfrog. I think at this point, you know, it's it's going to be several years that we leapfrog based on the pace that we're going on right now. And that's, that's, a, that's a good point. Just, you know, chiming in here on this as well, too. I understand that the, the difference between the United States and, and other parts of the world, and let's just focus on Western Europe because of the similarities. Um, you know, Sutrita nailed all the key parts of it, but what I would add to it as well, too, is that, is that no matter what happens here, you're going to have a, a percentage of the population that's significant that doesn't believe what they're being told. Mm-hmm. They don't believe that the, a vaccine will work. They don't believe anything, right? And that's just because of the misinformation um, that we're having across all the, the spectrum in, in the marketplace. So that, so what that leads to, which business hates, is what? Uncertainty, right? We, we know that, right? And that's, that's the biggest issue that we have here is that when there's different narratives, when there's not single when there's not a single narrative coming out, a single authoritarian narrative coming out um, or authoritative uh, narrative coming out, um, everyone's left to their own devices. And, and, and that's the frustration we're seeing right now is that everyone's on their own in essence and, and you have to figure it out. So whether it's, do you send your child back to school or don't you, or, or do you go to the store and how do you go to the store and how do you fulfill your needs and want, or do you, just, are you going to start ordering you know, food for your your um, your elderly mom or dad going forward as well too. There is a long term material change that is happening here, no matter what. And I think the point here is that no one right now can see when we end this phase, which which means that it's just going to become that much more habitual. And and honestly, here too, and this is this is where you have to love us as a species. You know, I wouldn't be shocked. You know, that in six or seven months from now. You know, there's a couple other things that we're looking at doing differently to solve for our needs and our wants here, right? Meaning, like, what what also, like, right now, e-commerce, right, it's all about direct ship. Amazon is ruling that. It's about click and collect. Walmart is ruling that. Delivery, Instacart's ruling that. But what we don't know is what's next. What's going to come out after that? How is, how is, you know, being able to purchase, you know, components of products and food delivery, how is that going to merge, going forward as well too, because I know I'm getting sick and tired of cooking dinner. Yeah. Right? I'm getting sick and tired of cook of, of washing the dishes. Right. So, so in my, you know, my, my test case of you one, and me both, you and me both, Sam. Exactly. In my <laughs> test case of one, you know, I, I also see at the end of the day, you know, you know, IRI, we call it a sure stomach, right? The, the stomach is only so big. So, you know, how are we going to start fracturing? There was a time, especially during the height of COVID, were, were a substantial amount of purchases in terms of if, if, if feeding your family was done through the grocery store. Big change from where that industry was trending, right? So now I think it's trending back away from it a little bit, but depending on what happens in the future, right, what is the next phase that's going to come here now? A lot of restaurants have been reinventing themselves in the essence to try to survive. How do they come into this ecosystem now? 
And right. how do we track it? How do we manage it? So forth and so on. So there's some, some really cool stuff coming up. Um, you know, I think we're in some really cool phase right now and some really cool stuff coming up in the near future as we get to see the, the brilliance of entrepreneurship and, and um, you know, human species development and innovation. I think yes. I, I read, oh, sorry. See, I was going to say, I think I, I read one of our IRI metrics around um, the restaurant closures impacting um, grocery. I think it was 58% of consumers are making 91 to 100% of their meals at home. I mean, I know I'm one of them. And I know that just as an aside, I have never needed to clean my oven the way that I now need to clean my oven. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I know, and it reminds me, um, Sam, you what you just said about like innovation. The company that I always was fascinated with, and it, sadly, is no longer there. Rest in peace. But it was a really interesting idea. It was this company called Kitchet, um, and it was one of those San Francisco startups. But it was basically an on-demand. Um, personal chef. And the economic model that they had was one that only really allowed it to be used for dinner parties. But to me, I mean, the thing that I I wonder about is... um, there is this very, um, you know, kind of under the radar ecosystem of chefs and personal cooks around the country, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, there especially like ethnic cooks, like, you know, people who cook Indian food or, or Thai food or whatever. And, you know, kind of they have their network of people that they deliver, you know, kind of their home mm-hmm. cooking to. And there is not right now any um, technology that has, has basically, um, consolidated that workforce and, you know, kind of, or even combined them with the professional chefs that either have been let go or will be let go in the coming months, you know, to come. And, um, you, you know, kind of basically lets them connect directly with, with people who need, who need that food. I mean, one of the things that was, you know, I, I totally, I mean, it's like, I think we're all sick of, you know, kind of just, you know, cooking all the time. And especially now the schools are starting again, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it adds a whole other layer of, you know, just challenge to, to all of your time management. Um, but one of the things that, that I think has always been an issue with restaurants is that you can't always control your ingredients. You can't, um, you know, I mean, you don't always know where things are from, from the most part, for the most part. And if you can, you know, kind of have a personal chef that kind of gives you the best of, of all worlds, like variety and choice, and at the same time, being able to control your ingredients, um, it, you know, that's actually potentially a model, you know, and maybe there's like, you know, a new version of Kitchen that comes out that, uh, that could change all of our lives, especially us working parents. Yeah, I think we need to see like how how pods develop. Mm-hmm. Right now, I think you've been hearing, you know, in school they're developing pods. Some families are developing their own out of school schooling pods. Right? How does this, you know, you know, with a, with a lot of families, you know, not necessarily always having two um, um, two adults at home too. How how does the how does the neighborhood how does the community come together? To, to, to meet the needs of, 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 you know, of families, meaning, you know, it is becoming increasingly challenging for families to be able to, to manage everything, you know, on their own. Um, and, and it doesn't make more sense for us to develop some type of a pod network. Now, bring this back to e-commerce, right? Because um, this is some, some cool, you know, thought tracks that we're on here, but bringing this back to e-commerce, you know, I, I, you know, two things. A, the existing models that we have, you know, today, I think they will continue to help facilitate that meeting, right? If we do do something like in pods where you need to buy more bulk. Well, again, you can search for that, right? E-commerce is the 
is perfect in that context because it allows you to search. Going going back to Sharisha's point, if you, if you need to, you know, be able to better manage different ingredients, well, you can search for that as well. E-commerce is perfect with allowing you to be able to search for that. And in, 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 in that context, it is so much superior to the in-store environment because you can find what it is you, that you need. In addition to that, I, I think, you know, innovation of things that we haven't thought of yet, right, this is where new organizations, new uh, corporations will come into play and try to try to meet a need of something that they're seeing. So whether it's, you know, taking, you know, something that that, that failed in the past, but now because the new new business environment, are they able to re- reset and reapproach things? I, I think that's that's the really neat stuff that we're going to be able to have to monitor and track going forward. So looking ahead, I know that um, we've talked about a couple things here. We've talked about um, e-commerce will continue to rise, right? Um, And that there needs to be investments um, made to heighten the demand amid this sort of new normal. And then, um, you know, this this rapidly changing um, omni-channel environment requiring uh, manufacturers and retailers to what you spoke about earlier, Sam, you know, quickly assess changes in purchasing behavior in line and of course, I guess also in store um, and adapt um, accordingly. So, you know, in that vein, what else, what's next? So Shreed, I'll let you go first. Um, I think that one of the things that we've been talking about, because this is, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit of a, of a of a difference in business model. So we talked a lot about the consumer. We talked a lot about, um, you know, kind of delivery models. Um, one of the things that we think is potentially an option in the future is a, uh, is, is differences in revenue models entirely. And one of the, the, um, the ideas that's fascinated me is just the growth in, um, in retailer media networks in particular. And the insight there is, is that grocers in particular, anybody really selling food, it could be a grocer, it could be a mass merchant, a dollar store, really, um, where they have, a, you know, club channels, of course, too, where they have, um, they're still attracting people. And they get um, the lion's share of the the foot traffic that's out there. People are at the end of the purchase funnel, and they're highly captive. And they are extremely alert and open to, you know, ideas. And yet retailers have never really seen themselves as media opportunities, Um, you know, to the degree that, uh, you know, maybe an end cap or trade funds constitutes that. That's the closest. But I'm saying go even further than that. Like it's just straight up screens and stores with advertising. I mean, I've heard of, you know, kind of utilities that want to advertise in front of of this audience of people. And given that grocers and anybody selling essentials is so low margin, um, anything like this presents presents a huge, huge opportunity. And the, the aha moment for me was from some Forrester survey data that had come back um, to us looking at about a dozen different media formats, um, including like a bunch of digital formats and social media formats, and then traditional formats like magazines and television and radio and whatnot and billboards. And... Um, the format that people said they pay most attention to was actually in-store ads, even more than paid search ads, even more than social network ads. And yet, where 
advertisers and marketers are spending more of their time and energy is on those paid search ads and on those social media ads. And people are not paying attention to them. And it's like, and we wonder why the click-through rates and like the incrementality is so low on those formats. Well, it's because nobody's paying attention, but because it's easy, you know, they've captured all of this share, even though what this data says is that they're essentially not very useful. Um, so, so I think that, you know, kind of when retailers, kind, and they gradually are, awakening to this opportunity, um, they're going to be well positioned to, to take advantage of it. I mean, there's some really cool and interesting, um, you know, technologies out there. There's a company called Cooler Screens that um, has like ads on refrigerated surfaces. Um, and I think they have got like, they've got like a pilot in Walgreens where, um, you, you know, it's basically it's, you know, it's another surface for more ads. And, you know, if that has the ability to influence um, a transaction, I mean, that's that's a really interesting change. And if that, you know, delivers margin to a merchant that didn't have those margin dollars before, um, you know, that's that's a huge win for that retailer. I complete, completely aligned with you. And, and, and I think it actually, it, it starts with, with actually really understanding the Amazon P&L because retailers who are competing against Amazon, if they pull apart the Amazon P&L, you know, I'm going to use, you know, rough numbers here quickly. What they're seeing, you know, to your point, you know, Amazon is making over $20 billion with a B from advertisement. They're making, you know, billions of dollars in terms of, uh, you know, fulfillment fees or, or selling fees from third-party sellers. They're making billions of dollars off their web, their web service, and they're making billions of dollars off of collecting different money from different brands in the same context, right? So if you start understanding their P&L and you compare their P&L, Right. I, I referenced earlier on that that no one is more aggressive than Amazon in terms of pricing. In fact, Amazon has no problem selling your product with low cost. Right. Well, they're able to do that because retail is actually their sub their, their side business, right? Their primary business is traffic. Their primary business is traffic to get more and more shoppers coming to their site to be able to sell them, you know, third-party material, be able to sell them, you know, uh, media, so forth and so on, and being able to leverage that for for media investment and everything else, right? You know, Suchirita, your, your point is, 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 is spectacular in the context that existing retailers, what they need to understand is that, yes, they have set assets already in the context of their four walls, but also in the context of their, the loyalty of the shoppers who are coming in there. And while we've already defined that, that, that less and less of those shoppers are still coming in, there's still a substantial amount of folks coming in, in store. And if they can find a way to monetize that environment to be able to become more competitive versus Amazon in that context, then they'll be able to do more. They'll be able to build more infrastructure. They'll be able to do a better job at targeting consumers. They'll be able, be able to do a better job of filling the needs and wants of their consumers, but it takes them to rethink their model. Right now, their model is, is predicated off of shoppers coming in, finding the product they want, putting it in their cart, standing in line to give a cash register money, somebody has to cash register money. That model's gone. Right to reinvent yourself, you have to rethink the approach, everything that leads up to that, and find a way to be able to better do that going forward. Well, I I cannot tell you both um, how uh, profoundly informative this this conversation has been, and I can't underscore that enough. And uh, super humbled to be um, speaking with you both. 
I know that um, my mother used to say, never miss an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. And so um, <laughs> that was an easy job for me today to, to hear the two of you. Um, so I'd like, to, I'd like to thank you for, for your time and, and welcome you back in the future if, if you're up for it. Sure, of absolutely. Course. Really enjoy the time speaking with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Of course. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for listening. Please become a subscriber and let us know what you want to learn more about. We'll serve it up in a future IRI Growth Insights episode. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to review IRI Growth Insights. Also, visit us on the web at iriworldwide.com and connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.